Listener Production. Catherine, our next guest is the remarkable Nardol Nguyen and her 21-month-old daughter, Angath, who is also with her in the studio. And she is a commercial litigator with Arnold Bleck Liebler. But she first came to my attention as a remarkable, strong voice on ABC's panel show, The Drum, particularly for the African-Australian community. And um, she has certainly, I think, proved her clout very much ever since I first started to hear her speak up for her community in an incredibly courageous way, but particularly recently. It's a great pleasure to have Nidol here today. And I, I, I too have watched her work as such an effective advocate. And I thought on that, I'd be really interested to maybe start off by asking you, Nidol, um, given the backdrop of some of the issues around the African-Australian community and particularly with the Victorian election, what are the areas that you're feeling within the community are most potent at the moment? And I guess, where would you like to see things start to evolve? It, I mean, it's been a really intense year for members of the African community because it's just, it's been unrelenting in terms of the media coverage and the political commentary about about um, crime and youth crime, which has really morphed into just African crime, whatever that that really means. And so we were all looking forward to the end of the election because I think most of us thought, you know, at the end of this election, maybe people will move on and we can just go on back to our lives as lawyers or, you know, moms as just normal people, uh, which, which felt as if you were denied that opportunity throughout the year because it just... You felt as if you're constantly under the gaze and being scrutinized and analyzed and to some degree vilified. So it's been it's been an intense year. But but there've also been some really positive stuff. I've never seen as much of a response in the African communities I've seen now, like people speaking up, people, you know, making their voices known, people demonstrating, writing. So it's also really encouraged almost a backlash of of, of the community and a reaction that has been rather positive. You know, I've seen people even engaging in politics, become registered members of political parties and campaigning and door knocking. So there is that aspect of it as well. Going forward, I'm not sure... I've never thought that, um, I mean, one of the reasons why I, I think many people in the African community and those who are allies decided to get involved in this was because we understood that this kind of vilification has long-term consequences. Mm. Um, and so even if the election finished today, we're still going to suffer the impacts of what this year of vilification has really done. Um, we're still going to suffer in terms of discrimination, in terms of finding employment, in terms of harassment on the streets. So there is a really negative picture already established of African-Australian communities that it's going to take a long time to to address that. And what is it, Nadal, that uh, made you, in a way, become such a a voice for your community? What is it in your background, in your upbringing, in your parenting? Like what what formed you and gave you the desire and I guess the courage to speak up? I don't know. I think it's a combination of a lot of stuff. And it's a really good question because it it goes, it sometimes goes back to um, 
the assumption when when migrants are seen as just one lump sum and the nuances of our individual upbringing, the contributions of our own family, our own family history, how all those things define us in in a new country. So I I come from a very political family. My father was involved in the guerrilla movement in South Sudan for all his life, starting as a very young man. My mom has also been very politically active. And, you know, I have a grandmother who is, you know, a total feminist. She used to take men to court in, in the South Sudanese, I mean, in not South Sudanese, but the Nuer court systems, where it was rare for, for women to, to drag men to to court and, and she would win, you know, and she raised the last time I saw her, she had moved two hours away from the main town and essentially established her own town, you know, two hours away from the main town, no running waters, no electricity, no nothing. And a little village sprung around her where she was almost a de facto leader. So I think I've had, I have had that history of people in, in my life personally standing up for things that they believe in and, and, and paying a very high price for it. You know, my father was killed in the um, in the in the course of uh, fighting for the idea of, of an independent South Sudan, and I just I think I've always just been loud, and you know, um, <laughs> as it's uh, t- maybe t- been told too loud for a woman. Uh, so, yay, um, yay for too loud yeah. for a woman. Women never never too loud. No, not not on this series. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think that that personally comes in as well, and and I just uh, and I just got tired. Like I just I really just got I just had enough sitting in my house, you know, feeling as if like many members of the South Sudanese community, I wake up every day, I work hard, I pay my taxes, you know, and to constantly being you know pushed under the bus because of what a few people are doing when it's not being done to the rest of other communities, you know. So every time a Sudanese kid uh, does some something wrong or unacceptable you know it's a Sudanese African did this and you would see exactly the same conduct being done by a group of you know white kids and and rarely is their race made a central issue of, of it so we were constantly being dragged into the criminal activities of other people when we had nothing to do with it and I just I just thought you know, I've had enough of it I've had enough of this and I've had enough of other people speaking about my experiences and so I didn't even really go into this whole thing thinking I was a voice for the African community and I don't even think that you know I just went in as you know, and as, as an Australian who is entitled to be judged based on my individual conduct instead of the conduct of other people. I don't even want to be judged based on the conduct of people that are related to me, let alone people that I just merely share skin color with or a geographical location that happens to be Africa. So I think it was that as well. Uh, is that also, Nigel, what led you to end up studying law? Well, wh- why did you why did you do that? Was it also because you wanted to feel that you could actually do something, get into a system and change it? Is that why you ended up doing that? Yeah, I think I've always, um, yeah, I mean, not always, but I, I wanted to do law from quite a young age. You know, I was 14 in Kakuma refugee camp when I thought I'm going to be a lawyer one day. And I think the core of it was just, you know, the notion of justice. I was surrounded by some of the most vulnerable people in, in the world who had very li- little protection, who depended on the UN, the UNHCR for, for food rations every 14 days. You know, there was no medical facilities. And then there was also just a, on top of those things, immediate cultural issues that that I found really disturbing. So from a very young age, you know, I was 
having debates with aunties and uh, about why is it that women were expected to do certain things that men weren't expected to do in my culture. And and so um, you know, I think inherently I, I had that idea of the law has the best tool for justice and redress. And also because it was a much peaceful manner of achieving it because it didn't involve violence, which was what had displaced most most of us to refugee camps. So I wanted something that could achieve a, you know, a sort of, of, of justice and fairness, something that I could use as a tool that didn't cause the same kind of harm that was caused by using violence as a form of resolving conflict. So the, the law has always been in, in some way, the best tool to, to try and, 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 and achieve social justice. It's a sort of taming or um, disciplining of the more base instincts that we have into a sort of structured, uh, civilised way of doing things. Um, I do take your point on that. So you're 14, you're in a refugee camp. When did you come to Australia? How did you come to Australia and why Australia? Well, I came to Australia in March 2005. Um, and we came because one of our distant relatives was willing to sponsor us. That was uh, so you come, you can come to Australia in a number of ways. One of those is to have you know a family member sponsor you, which is why you know some of the debates on immigration actually are quite important because they're limiting that process, particularly the process of having people sponsor family members or distant family members to come to Australia. I know that process now and it's very, very hard now to bring anyone. I've been thinking of bringing other people, extended family members, and I know it's just so difficult and the waiting list is so long that you don't even think it's it's an option anymore. But that's how I came. I was, I was, my family and I were sponsored by an extended family member, and uh, we arrived here in yeah, March of two thousand and five. At that time, I had an uncle in the US, but he encouraged mom that the best place for us would be Australia. He didn't think that the United States was a really good place to raise children, particularly if you were a single mom. And my mother had seven, seven of us at the time, and two of my uncles. So that's how we ended up here. Wow. Your mother was bringing up 10 children. Yeah, she was bringing up 10 kids. Yeah, two uncles and uh, seven kids. Wow. So there were 10 of us when we came here. That is incredible. You've got a a 21-month-old and another baby on the way, so I guess you uh, really understand just what your mother took on. Finally, finally I understand how hard it was for (laughs) mum. I think I think mothers quite appreciate that moment, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely they do. You were 18 when you came. Yeah, I was 18, yeah. And, I mean, your English is incredible. Were you speaking English before you came? Did you, like, how did, how did you get to be this fluent? Well, my English is actually not that good. I mean, if you follow my tweets, you might see quite a pattern of mistakes that I make. But I follow your tweets, Nidal, and I don't notice the mistakes at all. Um, <laughs> no more than uh, the norm, no, anyway. <laughs> I make shockers. Um, I, um, but Kenya was, because of the colonial history of Kenya, being, it was colonised by the British. So English is the language of instruction from primary school all the way to university. You also learn Swahili in, in Kenya, but every other subject is taught in English. So uh, that gave me a, a huge advantage because I know I had friends who had come through Ethiopia or or Egypt, where in Ethiopia, you know, the language of instruction in school, I think it's Amharic. And in, you know, in Egypt, I think it's Arabic. So they had a much di- more difficult transition to school when they came here. Well, I had a, a relatively smoother one, not entirely smooth, but relatively smooth transition. I used to read a lot as well. I think that helped. I loved reading even in the camp. I would 
and it, uh, we had a library not far away from where there used to be a basketball court and I'll go and get books and after I had done all my duties for the day which was either cooking or cleaning or something I'll sit on um, this there was this tree that was in the middle of our compound and I sit on it and I'll just climb up a bit and read until the sun set and because there was no electricity in Kakuma when the sun set that was it I couldn't, I couldn't read anymore so sometimes I used to steal my mom my mom um, touch and try and read with it which she didn't like because we didn't have a lot of money so she didn't want to keep using her batteries for <laughs> for me reading all through the night but now I could steal it for a few hours for a few hours and 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 continue reading so I think that really helped uh-huh. yeah I must um, say just listening to you saying something like that having to read uh, while there was daylight what a contrast to come to Australia, and I'm just wondering what were the things that you you noticed uh, when you when you did arrive here. What I guess you had some expectations, but I'm wondering what really struck you when you first arrived here about our society and you know about the country you'd landed in. I had I had huge expectations. I expected to have my own room, but I ended up sharing a room with my two sisters. So um, rather disappointed really quickly. <laughs> That's a big blow. Yeah, yeah, it was a big blow, you know. I, but I think the first thing that really st- strikes you is just the presence of peacefulness. You know, you couldn't see AK-47s around. You know, it was quite common to see police with AK-47s on the roads. Um, I mean, I, I don't even ever recall seeing a Kenyan police without some sort of a gun hanging hanging close to their body. Um, and uh, I, and this was a traffic stop. When you visit Nairobi, for example, this was at a traffic stop. You would see police with AK-47s, which, and I was quite terrified of police. And I remember the first time I actually saw a policeman at Denenong train station shaking because the, my reaction to police based on what I'd experienced in the camp was always really horrible. So th- that, that, like, just that sense of peacefulness. And that I had a lot of joy and hope. I was looking forward to just putting my head down and going to school and learning and getting to university and completing my my first degree and becoming a lawyer. I had I had so much hope and like and the world just seems to to open up. And you achieved all of that. I mean, that is the path you have followed. I have. I've been lucky to achieve most of the things that I've that I thought were just dreams, you know, I've been very, very lucky in that, in that instant. And I, and I insist it is luck, you know, I mean, I've got friends that are still back in the camp or have moved to South Sudan after it became independent. And I can see the difference in my life and their lives. And I wasn't any more intelligent, any more hardworking, any more ambitious than any of those kids. You know, the only difference between me and them was the fact that I came to a country like Australia where it was possible to um, dream really high and you know and and achieve it should should you should you work hard for it and and also be lucky enough. I was lucky enough to have a mom who was always you know very supportive and always encouraging us to pursue education and to study. Uh, you know, my mom was quite intelligent. You know, when she was in in Ethiopia, she used to be top of her class before she was forcefully taken out of school. And I think that experience made her want push us so hard to pursue our studies because she you know she kept telling us things like I know my life would have been different had I not been taken out of school now and so we were lucky to have that because I know that uh, some young women don't have that they don't have mothers who value education and and see it as a tool of transformation And, and so I had that throughout coming to Australia I was able to pursue my studies and go back and do further studies. 
sense of you having been lucky, of other people with equal talent and intelligence not getting the chances that you've got. Has that been a driver for you in terms of your sense of standing up for your community, using your luck, as you put it, for the greater good? Yeah, because you feel as if you feel as if you're wasting an opportunity um, not to to do that. I would feel guilty if I didn't take up the opportunities I have in this country, knowing that so many people would would give up so much for the same. Um, but I think it's something that as I stay here, I try to be more careful about because I I, I came here when I was eighteen, and so I you know I had seen what being in a refugee camp was. But for someone like my siblings who, you know, one of them was born here and the rest, I'm learning not to impose that kind of expectation on them. The idea that you you must somehow compensate for other people not having an opportunity because you've come from the same circumstances. So I try to learn to just understand that they they are very different from me. They are Australian first more than they are South Sudanese. And and as a result, their experiences and their standard of what is achievable or not, it will depend on how they themselves grow up and the experiences they have here. Mm. Um, So that kind of wanting to do the right thing because you've seen the worst in life is it can have really negative impacts because I think part of the reason why we've got, um, you know, a lot of, uh, we've got some issues in our community with, with young people and parents is because the parents constantly expect them to understand that, well, you know, I had to run and dodge bullets to make sure that you're safe. You know, how can you complain about this? And it doesn't give the kids that are growing here the chance to feel as as if their experiences are valid Mm -hmm. um, and that their struggles are okay, even if they don't compare to bombs being thrown on your head. Because at, at the end of the day, what you experience personally is significant. It's not. It's. It. It doesn't diminish because someone else experienced something harsher. I think it's useful to be able to see that, but it's not. It shouldn't be used as a means of dismissing other forms of experiences. So, yeah. yeah on the one hand, it's a driver. On the other hand, I try to think more about how it impacts me and, and try not to impose it too much on on my siblings because it comes quite easily to want to be like oh no you you should be exactly like this and you should aim to be all at universities and you should have master's degrees and you should do this because you know other people would never have this opportunity and some of them just want to be singers which is fine which is what I think this country <laughs> and why know, not and yeah. why not Why not? This is what this country allows you to be. You know, you don't have to live as if you have to survive anymore. You can actually dream and do things and become, you know, a gamer or something. That's exactly why it's beautiful to be here, because you can finally just be a human being and explore the wide variety of what is possible. Mm-hmm. Nigel, um, just uh, putting context again around this, but I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on how women are faring in that uh, area of law firms where, where you're working. It's, as you say, these things are very different to the conditions in refugee camp for women. But nonetheless, we still have quite a lot of barriers around for women, don't we? And even in professional services uh, where we have so many women graduating in law and so on, what do you think's happening there? Are you optimistic? Are, are, are women stepping up and into those partnerships a bit more now? Or what's your feeling about that? I think it's certainly improving. Mm. 
But I, but I think what we see in law firms or what we see in any other area of corporate life is merely a reflection of what is happening in our wider society. Um, and so uh, if attitudes in the general society are not shifting, um, then I think it's hard for those um, for them to be shifting in, in 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 corporate life. I think some. I think a lot of firms are trying to do the right things in terms of providing things like parental leave and all that. Um, but it's still hard. I think being a parent is the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm. And it's just, I've been lucky. I suppose to be at a workplace as well that has been so flexible in terms of coming back and trying to find what hours really work for me and what doesn't work. And, 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 and at every junction, they've been tremendously flexible to allow me to work the hours that best fits and with my family's set up at the moment. Mm. Because your, your husband is um, not based in Australia, is he? Yeah, he's, he, works, he works in the US. So he's, he's pretty much in the US for about nine to 10 months a year. So um, I'm essentially the sole primary parent at the house, working four days a week. And this year, as well as doing a lot of community advocacy, so it's, I feel as if I've been doing three full-time jobs. You know? Well, I'm so glad you felt okay about bringing a daughter with you to this because we don't want to add to that <laughs> burden. That's the last thing we want to do. It's interesting to me that you said, you know, being a parent is the hardest thing you've ever done. I don't think I've ever heard a man say that. I know. Like <laughs> I, I've, I've, it's, it's definitely the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, it's just... It was for me too, and I'm sure Catherine would agree. Oh, yeah. She had... Two-year-old and then twin girls, so you know she's got really special situation. <laughs> I, I won't. I won't start. It, it, it would go on too long. But uh. they're all grown up now. Thank yeah, God. Thank heavens. But yeah. yes, it is hard work. What do you say to younger women, Nigel? Because I'm sure you get asked, as as we all have over the years. Oh, how am I going to do this? You know, what's your best advice? How did you cope with this? Are there some things that you found just really useful along the way, either either practical things or just the way? of approaching it mentally that have helped. And by the way, Jane and I are completely disbelievers that there's any major solution on on hand here. But sometimes Mm -hmm. something can just help you through. And I just wonder if there's something you pass on to others. I think I generally tell them that it is hard because I think that we get sold a very nice picture of what motherhood is. And for some people, it comes very easily and it's I'm yet to meet one, but there must be some out there. I think yes. some well, fib. But I, yeah, I found, I, and, and also there's additional cultural layer here because in my culture, women are not really expected to to be working. You know, mm. I, I remember when I told some of my aunties that I was going back to school and doing further studies, they say, you already have one degree. What do you need? You know, get married and have children. What do you need another degree for? Because the idea is that I strongly believe that in my culture, we still bring up women particularly young women with the idea that the pinnacle of their humanity is to become someone's wife and someone's mum. And so I, I have to deal with that layer of, of cultural expectation in addition to the second layer of living in, in a country like Australia, which is still to a large degree dealing with how we you know, treat women or provides uh, for, for the needs of women in the workplace or mothers. And so I tell, you know, young Sudanese women that it is hard. It's very hard, but it, it can be done, but it's useful to accept that it's going to be hard because if you don't at least accept that, then you're judging yourself at a very high perfectionist standard where you won't allow yourself to 
to fail or to not do things well. So the first thing is to say, yeah, accept that it's going to be hard. At least you got that mental huddle, yeah. huddle done and that it's not going to be perfect and your house is not going to be, you know, clean all the time and you're not going to have all your dishes packed away. And because, you know, Sudanese women take a lot of pride in how their house look. They, you know, if you visit a few homes, you, you'll see what I'm talking about. They're always spectacularly clean. You know, the kids are clean, the dishes are washed, the clothes are washed. Um, well, I don't have that. So one of your pieces <laughs> of advice, presumably, is cut some of those corners with the housework and try yeah, and kind absolutely. of sort that out. Yeah. Yeah, if you can, if you know, if you can afford to have someone do it, let someone else do it. And you know what? It doesn't kill you to have your house, you know, not top 100% clean every day. I I have my daughter's toys in the living rooms, you know, some of it are in my room. And I try so hard not to judge myself by the standard of of other women and and how they're performing because I don't know what what their life is privately is and you know, it's, yet- it's very easy to do that but I try not to so you know I turn up to, <laughs> it's it's a, it's a it's a cultural thing to turn up quite well dressed and presented you know your hair must be done and you have nice makeup on and nice dress on to community events I just rock up sometimes with Hardly any makeup, <laughs> probably with the same dress that I wore a few times ago, and you know, so I just I just cut out the unnecessary stuff, the stuff that are just you know they just things that are supposed to make other people really happy but really don't bring you much joy yourself so and I've shaved my head for a long time now because I just don't have the time to get to get my hair braided and it's such a beautiful form of cultural expression um for 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 women but I just I just don't have the time to do it you know And, and sometimes people make fun of it but I don't care so it's really things like that where you cut out what is unnecessary and not and nothing is permanent you know so it might be hard now, but things might change in a few years and it's easy and I can get on and do other things. So also moving things around my life to try and focus on one thing now and not another uh, when things are really intense is also helps. So being very honest with myself, if I feel like I'm struggling, you know, taking the necessary time off work or reducing my hours or cutting down or you know, just being really honest that no, I, I am not... this is a lot to take on now and I'm feeling overwhelmed is not just pushing through and thinking I'll I'll make it because I'm pretty bad at that. I take on way too much than I should. I was going to say, Nidal, that this advice is really great. Um, Remembering, however, that you are still very young. I think you're the youngest woman of women with clout we've had. You're 31, am I right? Mm -hmm. And yet you have achieved an enormous amount in that time. You you are currently in in an absolute flurry of winning awards. You've won the Harmony Australia Alliance Award for significant contribution to empowering migrant and refugee women. You've also won the Unsung Hero Award from the Afro-Australian Student Organisation. And I believe you're a finalist for the Australian Human Rights Commission's Racism It Stops Me With Me Award. So all this cutting corners in the house and not braiding your hair and uh, turning up without makeup off on is paying dividends in other parts of your life, it would seem to me. Well, yeah, I mean, it's been it's been really shocking getting some of those awards. I mean, I remember attending some, and every time I read about the other people in in each award, it was just you know it was amazing how much they had done and for how long they'd done it. And I I really struggled, and I still struggle with the, with the awards things because I don't necessarily feel that I've done enough to earn those awards. But I'm you know I'm trying to psychologically 
work against that kind of thinking because I think that sometimes as women, we don't think we are deserving or of recognition or the work we've done. We undermine our own efforts and... This has been um, a consistent theme, Nayad, all of many of the guests we've had on this show. There's actually a name for it. It's called imposter syndrome. And while men can suffer from it as well, I think, as you say, a lot of women that we've interviewed, including some incredibly accomplished women, have been Mm. exactly the same. It's Mm. interesting. And also, of course, that gets reflected back to you by society a lot too. Let's, Let's be honest. It's not just something in our brains. It's actually because we are actually asked to sort of uh, downplay our achievements and certainly not wave the flag about them because that doesn't always work out well for women. That would be immodest. Yes. Yeah, and I, and I feel, and I, I still, and I really, really do feel uncomfortable yeah. Um, with, with, yeah, I still feel, I haven't still yet found a comfortable place for saying, oh yeah, you know what, not in, not in a narcissistic way, but yeah, actually I've, I've, I've worked hard and I deserve that. I still find it very, very hard. And, and in some ways, even, even making those things public is almost like a fight against myself, but like, you need to work against this mentality of always thinking as if nothing, you know, things you do are, are not of value. And I think part of it also comes from, um, years of being a refugee and a refugee woman and and a kind of the the, the trauma that you see um through life that reinforced that idea that you're not a worthy human being, you know, yeah. that because you were a refugee and you, you suffered and you see so much trauma. So I'm trying to work against that visibly by, by forcing myself into situations that makes me uncomfortable, even accepting awards. And in some ways that's what, like, I mean, I've, I've done things like that in the past. I remember when I was 13, 14, I was quite tall for, for my age, you know, uh, um, and I, and I, and people used to make fun of me for being too tall, and um, that no, no guys felt intimidated to want to date someone like me, or you know, like I, I because I was just too intimidating and too imposing, and and I started believing that so much that I would be, I was so afraid of wearing high heels because I just felt like I was emphasizing the my 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 height, and so what I would do is that I would wear slippers even to church, and one time I just thought, you know what. <laughs> I'm just going to I am who I am and I remember you know I, I started wearing high heels as a way of working against my own internal um, fears about looking a particular way and not looking beautiful enough or not supposedly fitting a definition of what beauty for a woman was um, so it's a tactic that I sometimes use is to try and to try and work towards my own uh, suppose insecurities by doing exactly the opposite of what it's, my fears are telling me. It's very much from what you've been telling us right the way through. It's very much about challenging standards and mm. working things out that suit you. And uh, even though that can be that can be fear inducing, no doubt. Um, mm. But gosh, it is also about using that platform, and uh, you've done that so uh, effectively. Uh, and uh, it's it's just it's wonderful to hear your story um, and. Fantastic. Um, I hope you continue to battle with those feelings of maybe imposter syndrome because really uh, what you're doing, I think, is uh, providing um, a real sort of light for the people, 
but people generally, yeah. you know, right across the and board. And also broadening our knowledge of what it is to be a refugee, to be marginalised and to come to this country. But I also want to say to you, Nida, I'll keep wearing those high heels. <laughs> I, I think that I love that idea of a simple gesture like saying, yes, I'm very tall, but damn you, I'm going to wear my heels and I'm going to be <laughs> proud of my height. I am immediately going to do the opposite and take off my heels because I have the opposite problem. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Nidal, for your time. It's been wonderful. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and Catherine Fox. Producer Lip Crown, theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. Listener.